welcome to this installment of the McKinsey on Finance podcast. I'm Dennis Swinford, editor. There's been an explosion of mergers and acquisitions coming out of China in 2016, even as M&A has slowed in other markets. In this podcast, our host, Werner Rem, discusses the trends with David Cogman and explores the opportunity for Western companies looking to sell. David Cogman is a partner in McKinsey's Shanghai office, and Werner Rem is a strategy and corporate finance partner in the New York office. David, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to have you here today to talk a bit about China M&A, especially outbound out of China. A lot in the news in 2015, 2016, based on large deals and in general sort of a rising volume in the conversation about M&A and potential buyers. So I thought that maybe perhaps we start the conversation by framing it in, you know, how big a deal is this? How much deal flow is there really out of China at the moment? Thanks, Werner. I think there's a couple of reasons why this has become a hot topic recently. I think there's a correct perception over the last 18, 24 months that the type of deals being done and the scale of deal activity has really changed. You've got obviously the big headline deals like you know, ChemChina Syngenta, 43 billion acquisition, the bid for SPG, and then you know previously deals like Mithil Shuanghui, which were much larger and I think a different type of deal from what we'd seen in the past. I mean, pre-2010, the big deals were typically resource acquisitions. Now you're starting to see very substantial acquisitions of manufacturing and service companies companies. Now, this isn't exactly a new phenomenon. The first sort of landmark deal was maybe about 10 years ago, Lenovo acquiring IBM's laptop business. So, you know, we've been seeing outbound M&A for a while, but it, it ramped up massively after sort of the post-2008, 2010 period. And that's also when you started to see some of the more aggressive types of deals emerging. I think the other thing that makes it notable right now is that we're in the middle of a cyclical downturn in global M&A. We peaked around 2015 and, you know, first half 2016 has slowed down substantially. So while that's happening, you're seeing, you know, a cyclical downturn globally, but a secular growth story in China with the development of its outbound M&A activity. Let's focus on that for maybe a couple of seconds. What is going on in China that suddenly the growth story shifts to M&A to the extent that it roughly doubled, I believe, in the outbound sort of billions of dollars committed to M&A. You've got to bear in mind we're coming from a low base. I mean, even today, M&A in China is sort of runs at something like yeah, 7% of GDP, 10% of equity market cap. And by global levels, that's low. That's much lower penetration than you would see in the US or Europe. So we're still actually you know, relatively early on in the growth curve. It could go quite a long way from here. And if you wind back the story about five years, we were even earlier in the growth story. So part of this is just penetration. Part of it is the economy. And if you've picked up a newspaper in the past five years, you've read about the slowdown in China. And it's very real. And you're seeing a lot of companies feeling that you know, the trade-off between the growth opportunities they get from investing domestically versus investing abroad, are, you know, that, that's starting to look a lot more attractive in terms of sending dollars overseas. Now, beyond that, there's a few other motivations, like, you know, tactically, some companies are, you know, a lot of companies are interested in globalization, developing their business overseas. And, you know, M&A is often the fastest way of doing that in some industries. There's also a secondary motivation a bit around um, getting dollars offshore. Let me ask you maybe a more detailed question on that, because I, th I believe at least in 2015, something like 80% of the M&A in China was still domestic M&A. The first half of 2016 was a bit different, partially because of the big deals that you mentioned. But it's not that there is sort of suddenly this gigantic focus on buying a lot outside. Most of the activity is domestic still. 
that that's true, but that's typically what you see for most countries. That domestic M and A, you know, of that of the total M and A done by you know, companies in any country, unless you're Switzerland or Singapore, the majority is usually domestic, and then the next biggest is intra-regional, and then the third is inter-regional. Now, domestic M and A in China is still actually relatively underdeveloped. First of all, you know, in the SOE sector, M and A is primarily political. So a lot of the domestic M&A volumes you see is actually reorganisation of state-owned companies. Genuine private sector M&A is growing, but it's slow. You know, often these are companies that have you know significant control stakes with the founder, which make it difficult to sort of do public market transactions in them the, the same way that you'd see in the US or Europe. David, are we largely seeing the big deals and the outbound activity, or is there also some smaller deal volume going on where we see? Chinese companies sort of testing the water with smaller deals. Well, I think this is one of the big misperceptions about outbound M&A from China, which is you pick up the Wall Street Journal and you read about the mega deals. But when you look at the mix of deal volume, the vast majority is mid-market. In fact, probably more so than cross-border outbound from other countries. And a lot of the acquisitions are, you know, mid-sized manufacturing or service companies that you'll never have heard of. And that's where the bulk of the transactions are really taking place. I think if you wind the clock back to about pre-2010, and the dominant deals going on then were large ticket resource acquisitions, because right then commodities were cheap, well, relatively cheap, and the people that had the money were the larger SOEs. Now the activity is moving a lot more to private companies and mid-sized SOEs doing you know, small to mid-sized acquisitions, often for motivations like acquiring technology or acquiring market presence. So just like anywhere else, the, the large deals take the news, but 95% of the deal flow is small or relatively small. Absolutely. And, and frankly, the large deals have a bit of a checkered history in their success and how they've developed, which is actually true of large deals in most countries. Are these outbound deals any different than deals by, say, other industrial companies from other nations? Are they, you know, talked about large or small, but is there any behavior that is different either in the process or in the assumption of what to get out of these? So I think there's probably two or three things that are different about what you see, particularly with the big ticket M&A from Chinese companies. The first is the decision making. Typically for an outbound M&A from a Western country, it'll be a large corporate doing that and they'll have sort of fairly standard and developed corporate decision making processes. Often with a Chinese company, if it's a private company, often it'll be dominated by the founder and it's basically his call. And some founders will go very deep in running the negotiations and deciding a lot of detail just themselves. If it's an SOE, often there'll be, you know, one or two guys who are pushing this and they'll do a, you know, a disproportionate amount of the work in deciding and negotiating. So I think the decision making is a lot more concentrated. And that can sometimes be a little difficult for the counterparties to deal with, and we should talk about that in a second. And then the second difference is, I think, the execution capabilities. If you go back five or ten years, then execution capabilities for Chinese companies on outbound M&A were, were, were weak, frankly. They didn't have the bench strength. And frankly, the advisory, the financial advisory community was not really set up to service them effectively on this. Now, I think that's changed a lot. I think the in-house capabilities of a lot of Chinese companies have really stepped up. They've still got some way to go, but they have a lot more confidence in their ability to execute. The advisory industry is are better organized to serve them on these deals. So I think that's improved substantially, but it still feels quite different. You're seeing a slight, you know, different, different team, different sort of mentality and background on that side of the table than you would on the Western side of the table. How does that feel if I want to sell my company, right? If I'm, say, a mid-sized company in, say, a market like the US or Europe, there's a fairly established way to find sellers, find advisors, fairly professional process with clear sort of you know, deadlines and end product and so on. How does it how does it feel different if I try to sell my company perhaps to a Chinese bidder because I find that attractive? 
Well, Chinese bidders are certainly able to work in the traditional sell-side process. The, the issue is I think they respect it a bit less than a lot of Western companies would. And, you know, it's sort of an article of faith if you're in the U.S. that this is how you sell a company or a division. You go through these processes, you have these steps and so forth. And for a Chinese buyer, they would, you know, many of them will look at this and say, well, why, right? Here's the things we need to know. And then, you know, post that, let's talk about price and terms. And there's a lot more desire to sort of, you know, cut through the nonsense and the, on the process side and just get to, you know, can we do this or can't we? What's the right solution here quickly? Which is actually quite refreshing at times. Equally, it can be frustrating for the sellers and their advisors. The other group that finds this often a bit painful in this is when you have a contested asset in a public auction and you introduce you know, a Chinese bidder into that auction and it really puts the cat amongst the pigeons in that all of the other bidders, all of the non-Chinese bidders, you know, sort of perceive them as having you know, different willingness to pay, a, you know, appetite for the deal. Often there's the perception that they're willing to put a lot more money on the table a lot faster. That can often be difficult for the other bidders to deal with. The third area where I think there's sometimes differences is in financing and the attitude towards financing. And, um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the Chinese companies, particularly the ones engaged in the big, big ticket M&A, have got very, very substantial financing capabilities. And there's multiple pools of capital they can access. However, they're often a lot less transparent on that than maybe Western vendors are used to. So they're getting used to the fact that if you're coming in with binding bids, you need to have firm, firm financing commitments and so forth. But historically, that has been an issue on a number of deals. So they've turned up with a, an aggressive offer, but no transparency on the financing backing it. And that's difficult for a Western board to accept. Can we explore sort of your second point a little bit on the perception that Chinese bidders sort of have more money more quickly? And you seem to have alluded to that in, in, in when you were talking about the process, but there is a little bit of a sort of what they value kind of argument there, right? Is that the right perception? Is this just the aggressiveness of buyers trying to get into the markets and trying to get it done quickly? Or is there something else going on? One of the most frequent questions I get from, from, from clients and colleagues is uh, around, you know, basically around cost of capital, sort of do this perception that Chinese companies somehow, you know, apply a lower discount rate, they've got cheap funding. Uh, and that question comes in various forms. It can be companies saying, we've got this business that sucks. Uh, do you think there's a Chinese acquirer out there that might value it more highly? Or it could be, you know, we're bidding in this auction and we hear that there's two Chinese bidders and we're very concerned that they will, you know, just basically use a 2% discount rate or something silly like that and, and, and therefore put in a huge valuation. I can categorically say that there isn't a single Chinese company on the planet that wants to pay more for a deal than they have to. This perception about the uh, you know low cost of capital, ability to pay up and so forth is one of the most, I think, enduring misperceptions. Yes, there have been times, there still are times when Chinese companies have access to a lot of cheap capital and that has somehow distorted their investment decision making. But honestly, it's at the margins, I feel. You know, they might go through a more abbreviated form of the commercial evaluation than, say, a Western company might, but all of the same considerations are there. That said, you've got to remember a lot of competitive auctions of assets are, you know, if it's a strategic asset being sold that would allow a Chinese company to get a foothold in a key market or it's their first big step outside of their home market, then these things really do have strategic value. And just like any Western company looking at something like that, a sort of major expansion deal, you know, could be aggressive on the valuation. You see exactly the same thing with Chinese companies. And I think it's qualitatively different from having a Chinese company that's doing its first, second or third step out deal like this, where they feel it has, you know, we have to get this asset. It's important for our overall growth strategy. You know, versus a Western company that's done, you know, 20 
deals in the past year and this is just one of the 20 and they're trying to evaluate it in a very rational way. I think there actually are valid reasons that in some of the more high-profile auctions, you will see aggressive bidding by Chinese bidders. Perhaps related to, to this, we talked a bit about process, about pricing. There are some articles out there that are talking about the sort of difference, if you want, in strategic approach. And, and I think that's what makes it sometimes hard for sort of hardcore finance folks like me to square that particular round peg. So there's conversations around Chinese buyers look for good assets rather than companies they can improve. Yeah, Chinese buyers have a bit more of a light touch approach to post-merger integration. So that combination of, you know, paying similar prices versus not that many synergies, right, at least perception thereof, makes it sometimes a little hard to sort of understand the, the pricing levels that are being talked about. I think there's a bit of cultural bias coming in whenever we talk about integration approach. Uh, and the reason is the following. A few years back, we did some research on how did Chinese acquirers and actually Asian acquirers more generally, how did they integrate? And what we saw was the predominant model was, well, you, you didn't really. You managed through the board. You, you identified the, the few areas of synergy and focused on delivering those. But you didn't do, you didn't follow the traditional integration model that you see, say, in the US, which is, you know, you've got two headquarters, you close one, you consolidate functions, you strip out cost. Basically, you eliminate duplication and run the two organizations together. Now, when you step back and think about it, that sort of traditional model of how you do an integration, that was developed in a context in Western countries in market overlapping deals. So you've got two businesses in the, same, in the same market. How do you stick them together? That's absolutely not the model that we have for any of the outbound acquisitions from China. Typically, they're doing acquisitions in markets where they don't have a presence or they have a very minimal presence. And they're doing it for brand, for growth, for technology. They're not doing it for cost reduction. Occasionally, you might have a deal which is, has got a big cost element, but those are kind of the exception more than the rule. The other consideration, I mean, you stand in the shoes of a Chinese manager doing this, and you know, any, any good manager looking at an integration will say, what resources do I have? What pieces do I have on the board that I can deploy? And bench strength of a Chinese company, like how many middle-level managers do they have that could function in Germany, you know, that are fluent, that can work in that environment? It's usually not very many. So you don't have um, a ready-made team of people you can drop into the acquisition and run around doing lots of integration projects. That, so that leads you down a very different route in terms of how you do the integration. You need to be thinking about uh, governance through the board and then a sort of consultative partnership relationship with the incumbent management. You can't turn over the whole incumbent management, otherwise the thing will fall apart because you can't replace them straight away. You might think about you know, hiring in someone new, a, a lateral hire coming in, but I mean, that's you know, not a very common solution that you see. And then in terms of the synergy, you don't try to go across the board and do everything. You pick out the few areas where, there's, where you think there's real money in the short term and you focus on those. Now, this approach, you know, when viewed by you know, guys who work normally in the US or Europe, they would say, well, that's not how you do an integration. But viewed from a Chinese company's perspective, it makes perfect sense. And you wouldn't do it a different way. That should make them very attractive buyers for, say, a mid-market company in Germany or anywhere else in the world that really wants the growth and does believe they have the best management and the best engineering and the best products, right? Because presumably that's what you bring to the table and you can bring it to a much bigger table if you're under the umbrella of a then global conglomerate. True. And there were a lot of those deals going on maybe about five, six years ago. It was sort of Germany and, and to some extent Italy, but it was all the Mittelstand companies, the mid-market founder-controlled companies where you had a generational change happening in the management that the founders are getting old, they want to sell out, they want to realize the investment. And these are companies that have great technology, 
great products, but often expensive manufacturing. So it looks like a marriage made in heaven, that you stick them together with a Chinese company that has potentially cheap manufacturing, but doesn't have the technology, and is quite happy to keep the core business intact. And all they'll do is they'll just have the growth happen in China, and they'll build new facilities in China. Great. The other topic you mentioned was financing. I noticed that I believe ChemChina ordered something in the order of their own market cap in terms of debt. There's something like a $40 billion market cap and you know borrowed $30 billion to fund the acquisition of Syngenta, somewhere in that order of magnitude. Those are levels of debt that some Western buyers might not be willing to go to. What's driving that portion of the equation? A couple of reasons for that. I think fundamentally, yeah, a lot of these acquirers are more comfortable with high levels of debt. And bear in mind, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, when they were growing these businesses in the first place, often they were extremely highly leveraged. And it was bank debt when you didn't have a well-developed equity market. And, you know, the businesses grew, the economy grew, and it all worked out for everyone. So I think there is generally a bit more social comfort with high levels of leverage in the senior levels of Chinese companies than you might find in their Western counterparts. Second reason is that, well, the financing is there. I mean, often the limiting factor on how much leverage you see in deals done by Western companies is the ability, is their ability to borrow. And, you know, for Chinese companies, there is plentiful supply of domestic debt provision, but increasingly foreign lenders are very happy to pile in and finance transactions for outbound Chinese buyers. So the supply is there, the comfort with the users is there. And again, in many cases, some of these are transformative deals. And when you're, once you're in that sort of territory, it's much easier to get comfortable with taking big risks on how you finance it. So maybe for the next part of the podcast, maybe we shift lenses a bit. Now that we understand where the Chinese companies are coming from, both from opportunity creation and strategy and financing and so on. So I can immediately think of, you know, 10 years ago, we probably in a look at our portfolio would not have thought to sell something off to a Chinese company. In a traditional sort of set up a bidding for a business unit, you probably would not have invited a Chinese company to do the bidding and in the in the data room and so on. Uh, obviously, that needs to change. What, what else are sort of implications strategically and M&A-wise for large conglomerates in, in the rest of the world, quite frankly? A few years back, Chinese companies were not systematically getting included in these processes because often the sell-side bankers would think it's too much of a hassle. Um, and, you know, I'd rather work with, you know, bidders who, you know, I understand and they understand the process and I, they, they're dependable, whereas they view the Chinese as slightly as loose cannons. These days, I think actually the sellers quite like having one or two Chinese companies in a major auction, partly because it puts the fear into the other bidders and makes them feel they need to be competitive on their bids. But also partly because often there's a very good strategic rationale. A lot of what look like mature asset, you know, mature and not terribly interesting assets to a, uh, a vendor or a Western acquirer could look like, you know, a useful and interesting strategic foothold in a new market for a Chinese buyer. So there can be genuine differences of opinion on how they actually look at the asset and how they value it. So, you know, if you're selling, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of what sort of assets I would not try to include a Chinese buyer for. And it's going to be a very short list, frankly. Yeah, there's certainly some there, there's certainly some security concerns in some countries, right? We have seen deals that that were struggling with that, right? On the infrastructure side, uh, while we could you know easily see that you know if you privatize a port, you would look out for Chinese money, but not everybody would be comfortable with that yet, for instance, right? Well, there's some obvious exclusions if you've got defense in your portfolio or national security implications, um, then that's certainly true. But the number of businesses where there's a genuine national security angle, even in the US, it's, it's a small subset. I think the bigger issue that I hear from a lot of Chinese buyers at the moment is around political reception. 
And you might feel confident that you could clear the regulatory approval process, the foreign investment approval process, but feel uncomfortable as a Chinese buyer about the political reception you might get. That's certainly true in some countries right now where there's strong nationalist dynamics and we're coming up to elections. And I've seen a number of deals in the past year that uh, where the discussions have basically tailed off because precisely of these concerns on the Chinese side of the table. Bear in mind, in China, we still have a list of industries that foreigners aren't allowed to invest in, and all deals in China have always been subject to political considerations, and political positioning of the deal has always been tremendously important to foreign investors in China. Why shouldn't it be important for Chinese investors in foreign countries? I mean, when you look across the countries that I think have largely got this right, the one that stands out to me is Australia. They started dealing with this earlier than most because when we had the sort of post-2008 commodity slump, a lot of Australian resource companies found themselves high and dry, and you had a lot of Chinese acquirers who were interested and had the cash. So they kind of worked through a lot of these issues back then. I mean, starting with the Chalco Rio deal. And they have now, I think, a very transparent foreign investment criteria and foreign investment process. It's, it's well understood. I, I think w with these foreign investment processes, what's most attractive for the for Chinese buyers is the predictability. It doesn't matter actually what the rules are, so long as you understand what the rules are and how they're going to be applied to you. And with Australia, that's it's extremely good. It's very transparent, very predictable. That's an excellent example. And and. Maybe maybe that leads to the more predictive part of the conversation. Given the rules and, and the dynamics you just outlined, um, the political dynamics and cultural dynamics, do you think Chinese companies will embrace hostile takeovers in a, in a big way at some point? Hostile takeovers are... We're not quite... We're getting there. We're not quite there yet. I mean, like I said... We're in the middle of probably our first, you know, really serious hostile takeover battle domestically right now. And that's a fascinating case in and of itself. But intervention in hostile or launching hostile deals overseas is, I think that's going to be, you know, a, a, a big step forward from even that. Certainly unsolicited bids, there have been many, many unsolicited approaches. That's never been an issue. But uh, unwanted approaches or interventions in existing deals, those are few and far between. Between. Typically, it's confined to the sort of, you know, the, the mega deals in big consolidated industries where there's only a few players fighting it out. And, you know, globally, we're, we're not really there yet in many of the industries that Chinese companies are active in. So short of hostile deals, what are your predictions, if you dare, for, say, the next five years of this? I mean, there's no question that it's here to stay. Will it get to the level, um, circling back to the beginning, of intensity, M&A intensity we see in the developed world? Will it get to the intensity that we see in other markets like the US and Europe? Will it even exceed those given the specific growth dynamics right now in uh, China? I don't think penetration is ever going to be higher than what you see in the developed markets. I think there's a natural sort of limit on the penetration of M&A in any economy. And we're probably going to take about a decade to get to that point here. But the growth trend is unmistakable and, and nothing substantial is going to change about that. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, simply because most Chinese companies have a lot of other issues on their plate, particularly with the ongoing slowdown in the domestic economy. But I think the other thing that's going to come into play is, uh, for want of a better word, the generational shift. When you're thinking about five or ten years, that allows for quite a lot of turnover in the workforce, in the people who are sort of uh, you know, actually doing the deals in these companies. And as, you know, as every five years goes past in China, we get a more international, more capable and uh, more skilled uh, professional workforce in these companies. And I, I compare the, the sort of the business development capabilities I see in Chinese companies today versus five years ago, ten years ago, 15 years ago, and it's night and day. 
So you, you project that out and think where we're going to be in five or 10 years time, and you're going to have much stronger, much more capable teams, much more numerous teams, frankly. You look at the sort of collective output of the consulting and banking industries in China and, you know, where do they go for their second jobs after being an analyst? Often it's into a corporate. You know, you look at where that's going and the, the, the capabilities of the companies are going to be incomparably stronger in 10 years time. Thanks, David. That's certainly an, an interesting forecast. So the Chinese outbound M&A is here to stay. And in about 10 years, it will reach the intensity, the level of what we see in, in other uh, industrialized nations. So I'll see you in 10 years and we check back whether you were correct. Thank you very much, Werner.